Thank you, Colin. My name's Eric, and I want to continue to worship with you here in church. And so as we've been declaring the excellencies of God corporately together, I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we continue to ask the Lord to ready our hearts and minds, bodies, relationships, everything, so that he can speak to us, so that he can work his work in us. So would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the truths that you have made known, that we can agree with, that we can proclaim, that we can stake our lives on, that we can stake our relationships on, our comings and goings. Father, there are a lot of things now that are competing for our hearts, affections, our minds, attentions. You are greater. You are greater than all of those. Would you give us insight and wisdom to agree with you and to see those things as such. Father, I pray that even through a text such as this, you would give us a glimpse of yourself, who you are, what you're like, what you have done, and therefore who we are and what we are to do. So Father, have your way with us. Touch us, teach us, even transform us. We pray these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know all of you in this room. I don't know all of your stories, but there's a pretty good chance, I'm just going to venture a guess here, there's a pretty good chance that despite all your problems and all your struggles, that no one is actively hunting you to kill you. That may not be true for all of you. Um, In fact, some of you may not even know that it's true. You just haven't figured it out yet. But more than likely, not Hardly any of you are actively being hunted by someone whose express intent and purpose is to kill you. And so, we don't normally understand or feel that sort of distress or anxiety of having someone right behind us who's trying to snuff out our life. And that's a good thing. We want a society and a culture like that. But there's a certain sense in which that sort of notion, that sort of, ugh, ought to, at one level, be realized for the believer. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6 when he wrote a letter, his epistle, to the Ephesians. And in chapter 6, he tells them, our struggle, our opposition, our resistance, our wrestling is not with flesh and blood. Oh, it's not with Nero. It's not with Caesar. It's not with the Romans. It's with all the mysterious powers behind the veil. Wicked angels, dark forces that we don't really realize are, in a sense, arrayed against us. They are real, and they are relentless, and sometimes we forget. We say this all the time, but at any given moment, there's a three-braided collection of resistance or opposition against you. In this, in this life that we live, all of us, at any given time, we are being assaulted relentlessly by the world in which we live, the system of godlessness that promotes Christlessness, that rejects messianness. There's the world. There is our own flesh. We are characterized by sin and trespass and iniquity. And then there is our enemy. So what are we supposed to do with all that? Live in utter abject fear like there's always something coming for us? Or are we supposed to do nothing at all? Well, attacks or oppositions or resistances, they come in all shapes and sizes from temptations Maybe a temptation like what Tiffany was mentioning earlier to get drawn into some sort of digital escapism, some harmless game on a phone to a social media rant or whatever. Or or 
maybe to some rage that you might let loose all over someone that you love. Or, or, or to simply maybe listen to a whisper campaign from your enemy that says, you're really not capable of doing anything that matters today, so it's better to just sit it out and do nothing again. Man. In this life, Jesus said, we will have trouble. And perhaps when you've had those kinds of seasons of opposition and resistance and struggle, maybe you've found yourself asking the question, well, where's God in all of this? I mean, what's God doing? I mean, you've, you've gotten yourself in some pretty bad trouble with sin, perhaps, and now you can't see any easy way out. All your options seem to be bad or at best really hard. Where's God when I need him? What is God doing about this? Or perhaps maybe you just feel very numb and distant and like the Lord hasn't done anything for you lately to make you feel like you matter. Does he even care? Is he even aware? Well, hear truth. There's an old preacher's adage that has been used for centuries because it's true and it's applicable and we need to hear it. And it goes like this. Beyond Calvary, God cannot go. It means that God has done all that he can to address the resistances we experience in this life. And that provision that he's given, that he's made at Calvary, paved the way for all sorts of refuge in this age. In this age, we enjoy and experience the indwelling spirit. We have the written word of truth in scripture. We have the surrounding community of faith in this church. He's provided so much. No, God infrequently solves our specific problems in the actual moment. Instead, he has provided way much more, way much more. Look at how the apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. He doesn't just solve our problems. He's given us the actual capacity to be a part of the, the solutions and the resistances to our resistances through the knowledge of him, that's Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us for free, undeservedly, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. No other being in the cosmos gets that sort of dignity. Made in his image, the capacity to be a partaker of his image. You won't ever become divine. You'll never be deity, but ever increasingly transformed into his likeness, into his character. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We'll talk about that in our text here in just a moment. God has done so much more than we could expect from a policy or a program or a procedure. He has provided a person his sendable self, the second of the Trinity. So as we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we get to see some of the ancient origins of God's redemptive plan that got us to where we are today. And so our big idea for the morning coming out of the book of Joshua goes like this. God's provision is a person, not a protocol, not a policy, not a procedure, not a process. It's actually a person who is good, who is sovereign, and who loves us. His provision for our lives is a person. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. We've been studying through the book of Joshua since September of last year. And we've said for the theme of this book, our theme for the book of Joshua is God is our salvation. It's him. 
it's not a series of questions that I ask. It's not a series of steps that I take. It's him. He is our salvation. The name of Joshua means God is our salvation. God saves. God's done so much. This, this book is sort of a, a hinge as Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt all the way up to the borders of the land of Canaan. Moses has died at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua has been installed as the leader. He's taken them across the Jordan. They've taken Jericho. They encountered a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who was a believer. They went and took Ai after a stumble. They got duped into a covenant by the Gibeonites. And then they took the southern parts of the land. Then they took the northern parts of the land. The land has essentially and effectively been conquered. Chapters 1 through 12 are about that conquering of the land. Chapters 13 through our text today are all about the settling of the land, the apportioning, and the allotments of the land. We talked some, some really exciting texts the last couple of weeks like uh, Kedesh and Bezer and Gileath and all these kinds of fun place names that have no verbs that are really, really hard for a preacher. There, I said it out loud. Not been so, so, so um, intuitive to communicate a lot of this stuff, but it matters massively. We are going to be in Joshua chapter 20 this morning. All of the tribal lands have been allotted. You might remember in chapter 14, the first guy to stand up is Caleb. He's a Gentile, but he represents the tribe of Judah from which Messiah will come. And he says, hey, 45 years ago, the Lord promised me because my heart was wholly devoted to him that I would have this land and it's given to him. Then we go through all the other tribal allotments. We finish in chapter 19 and it ends with Joshua. He's last. He gets a place called Timnath Serah, which means abundant provision. And that's important. Because right after we get abundant provision, it's in the hill country of Ephraim, right in the center of the country. Then we start chapter 20. Speaking of abundant provision, watch what God's going to do now. Then the Lord said to Joshua. Now that's interesting. Maybe not at first reading, but let me explain why this is interesting. This is Joshua. He's not a Levite. He's not a priest. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's not supposed to have access into the tabernacle like Moses did. Moses is from the tribe of Levi. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. Very interesting. Joshua's from the tribe of Ephraim. His father's name is Nun. And the Lord speaks to Joshua. How exactly? We don't know. Sometimes God would just speak through Eliezer the priest. He has this breastplate that he would spin these two different stones and God would answer that way. Sometimes God would draw lots and have Joshua reach in the pot and whatever came up, that's what God was telling him. But sometimes God had so much detail to give Joshua that he spoke to him audibly. And I love that. This is the leader of the people of Israel at this time and his name is Joshua, Yeshua. We also know that every time we have an occurrence or an appearance of God in the Old Testament, it is the second member of the Godhead Trinity. It's pre-incarnate Christ. It is Jesus, Yeshua. So you have Yeshua God speaking to Yeshua the man. We know from Isaiah chapter 6 that the prophet sees the Lord high and lifted up and the earth shook and the temple was full of his glory. And John chapter 12 says that was Jesus. In the same way, the one speaking to Joshua now is Jesus, giving this Joshua some very specific and precise information. Now, 
This may not be that exciting to you, but I want you to think about every other faith construct, every other world-organized religion. You never see a deity engage with a person with this level of specificity and detail and kindness and compassion and grace. One of the distinctives of Christianity is the proximity where the border of heaven has been dragged down to earth. In fact, that's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. I am Jacob's ladder. I do grab the boundaries of heaven and the borders of earth, and I connect them. And you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's me. It's Jesus. And so here we have chapter 20. The Lord spoke to Joshua. He tells Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses. Jesus says, I've already talked to you about this when I talked to Moses. Well, what's going on? Super efficiently, way back as the children of Israel are gathered, they're about to cross into the land in Numbers 35. And then again, he repeats it in Deuteronomy 19. God tells Moses, I want you to establish cities of refuge when you go into the land of Canaan. Not only that, when you set up those cities of refuge, I want you to have excellent roads, the best maintained roads. I want super large, clear, and easy to read signs all along the way that say, city of refuge, city of refuge. If there's a ravine across the road, you bridge it. If there's a stream that goes across, you either dam it up or you go over it with, a, with another bridge. I want these cities to be always, always available. Now, he's already told Moses all this in Numbers 35 and again, Deuteronomy 19. So when, when God says this to Joshua, it's not new information. So that, verse 3, so that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there, they shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Some of you might have a different word than avenger of blood. Uh, in Hebrew, it is uh, goel, goel hadam. It is the, uh, the redeemer of blood. If those of you who are familiar with uh, the book of Ruth, our hero Boaz was a goel. He was the kinsman redeemer. Every family, every extended family would appoint a member of that extended family and say, you are our goel. If somebody messes with us, you're going to go and you're going to pay him back. And so it was a place of honor to be the goel for the family. And so God is referring here to a story that Moses gives in Numbers 35 in Deuteronomy 19, where Moses gets a little bit specific, a little bit very precise. In, De in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, Moses says to the people, let's just say, for example, that, oh, I don't know, uh, Philip and Joe are uh, out chopping wood together. And I don't know, let's just say that Philip's chopping wood and accidentally Philip's axe head flies off and it lands between Joe's eyes. Oops. Do you remember that? Philip, of course you remember that Philip. And Philip's going, wait, 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 wait. Like something like this probably actually happened. And so Moses refers to it, but it was an accident. What does Philip do if Joe's got an ax head sticking out of his skull? Because now Joe's on the ground collecting ants. It's over. He does not try to pack a bag. He doesn't go home and tell his wife. He doesn't go home and pack up his tools. He runs as fast as he can because he's being pursued He's now a manslayer, and it was accidental, at least from his version of the story, no other witnesses around. He's got to run as fast as he can to one of these cities of refuge, and the way God in his wisdom and in his grace, the way he sets it up, you are never, no matter where you are in Israel, north, south, east, west, you are never more than a day's journey from a city of refuge. 
you can always get there. And unlike any of the rest of the cities of Israel in the conquest of Canaan, those six cities are never to have their doors locked, ever. Even at night, even in times of war or persecution or oppression, those cities have to stay unlocked. They would even post watchmen on the roads to look to see if someone comes running. Are you seeking refuge? Yes, it's that way. And they would run with them to protect them. Now that's marvelous to me that God cares that much about human life. We have to understand what's happening. There's a lot going on here. He does not want an innocent manslayer. He's not saying that it didn't happen. I don't want an innocent manslayer. I don't want his blood spilled. There was a thing that happened, and it's bad, but God cares massively about human life. Way back in Genesis chapter four, Cain kills Abel, and God says, the land is defiled, and it cries out to me. Genesis 6, human violence, person against person, so grieves the heart of God, he sends the flood. It was because of the violence of man. Chapter 9, he says, this is how serious it is of Genesis. After the flood, if man takes a life, you are to take his. Institute governmental capital punishment because I want this to be deterred. I don't want you taking life. Man is made in the image of God. And so I don't want you slaying men. And I certainly don't want you slaying somebody else innocently. This sort of cycle of violence would just propagate itself. You ever heard of Hammurabi's Code? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. And so the family's redeemer would be unleashed to go and chase this person down unless he made it to a city of refuge. And then he would kill him. And then perhaps this family would say, wait a second, that was unjust. And so they would come after this guy and kill him. And it just propagated on and on. Why? I know you all know this. Let me say it out loud anyway. In those days, there was no police. In those days, there were no jails. It was just the law of the prairie. Justice was swift and it was executed by the family. And so God says, that's how it is. But I don't want bloodshed to defile the land. According to God, bloodshed of violence defiles his land, and his land is to be the habitat in which God and man dwell together. And so after all the conquests where God went before them, gave them the land, after all the allotments that God was involved with, and he assigns all the tribes, now I want to provide places where your actions, even as a mistake, don't defile the habitat between me and you, says God. So he continues on. He gives instructions in verse four. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case, breathlessly, no doubt. <laughs> See, what happened was Joe bent down and, well, Joe's got a huge head and it's like I couldn't miss. And then he tells his case. He explains his case to the elders of that city. They shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood, the Goel, pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. It was not premeditated, in other words. And he shall remain in that city, the city of refuge, not his hometown, until he has stood before the, con the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Oh, that's interesting. Then the manslayer may return to his home to his own town and his own home to the town from which he has fled. He has to go immediately. Once the accident happens, he has to leave. 
word is probably sent back to his family. I, ideally, they're going to join him for as long as this takes. The elders of the city of refuge, let's say it's Hebron and, and this side, they're going to launch an investigation. They're going to go back to the original site, talk to the people. And they're going to say, yeah, no, no, no. Philip and Joe were actually besties. They would never do that to one another. We know this. They were always close. There was a complete accident. Case closed. The elders would go back and say, okay, we've, ch- we've checked out your case. We've interviewed everybody. We see this was an accident, not intentional. You are innocent. However, you cannot leave this town. It was a freedom and a prison. You cannot leave this town because if you do, even though you've been deemed innocent, if you depart from the safety of refuge, the Redeemer, the Goel, can pick you off. That will be on you. Stay in your refuge until such time as the high priest dies. Now, that's interesting. Nowhere else is this found. This is a very unique kind of a deal. Here's the thing. In Numbers 35, God tells Moses that when someone's blood is shed, either intentionally or accidentally, it defiles the land. And for that, you cannot pay off the atonement. If you do something bad, you accidentally uh, steal somebody's sheep, you didn't know it was theirs, or you move a border stone, that's bad. But you can atone for that with money and set things right and offer sacrifice in the temple. But God says, for bloodshed, there is no atonement. The blood of the one who did it must be taken. But in this case, God says, I am providing an opportunity for someone else's blood to be shed in your place. Not shed, but die of natural causes. So the high priest, who, by the way, was usually an old guy when it was his turn to serve in that capacity, once he dies, what God is saying is, I am placing the guilt of the manslayer on the substitute who serves as high priest, and when he dies, the ground is atoned for, the blood is no longer defiling the land, there is clearance. And he can then return to his home if he so chooses. It's a beautiful image that's pointing us to all that we're going to see in the New Testament. So super very quickly here, verse seven. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee. Very quickly, just the names of these six cities. You're gonna go start on the west side of the Jordan, move north all the way down south, jump the Jordan, move to the north. All right, so we've got a map for you if you want to see these. They're marked in green dots. Starting in the northwest, go down south, jump the Jordan, move up north. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that's Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. And each one of these cities are significant in how they point to what is ultimately going to be our city of refuge, God's provision is a person. The name Kedesh in Naphtali, that's up in the Galilee region. It means sanctuary, where God and man can dwell together. Shechem means shoulder, as in Isaiah 9, and the government will be on his shoulders, and how the shepherd will bear his sheep on his shoulders. Hebron means communion or fellowship, that precious space between God and men where we fellowship together in this actual habitat. Bezer is said to mean a munitions fortress where God and man are together and there is safety and there is security. Ramoth generally understood as meaning the heights. So there is this lofty place where God and man dwell together. Golan, probably the most uncertain of what this word means, probably separated, this sort of set-apartness, set apart those who seek refuge in him apart from the rest of the world. Then verse 9. 
Those were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them. Not just for the people of Israel. Do you see what God's doing? I've given you this land in conquest. It's my land. I'm giving it to you in conquest slowly so that you can handle it. I've apportioned all the different tribal allotments so that there will be different pockets of my promise. I've installed cities of refuge for you, not just for you, but for the foreigner, the sojourner among you, so that you, Israel, can be a demonstration and an expression of my kingdom aesthetic, of my kingdom philosophy, of my kingdom ethic. You can offer this to the foreigner among you. It's a beautiful thing that anyone who killed a person without intent could, be, could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the Goel, the avenger of blood, till he stood before the congregation. And then the crowning achievement, we have chapter 21. We've established these six cities of refuge. Now we're going to talk about the Levites. Chapter 21, verse one. Then the heads of the fathers... Houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And if you're counting, that's all the prepositions there are in the universe, right there in that one verse. What's going on? After all this stuff has been done, all the 12 tribes have received their lands east of the Jordan, west of the Jordan. Everyone's been dispatched and dispersed. Six cities of refuge. No matter where you are in Israel, you are always within a day's journey of one of these cities of refuge. Now it's time for the Levites. They step up, and yet they know they're not going to get any land themselves. Because way back in Genesis 34... Levi and Simeon, two of the sons of Jacob, they had a sister named Dinah. And Dinah was attacked by some Canaanites who lived in Shechem, the Shechemites. And Simeon and Levi took horrible, bloody revenge on them. And so Jacob, their father, when he's handing out their prophetic blessings, says, you two, because you are men of vengeance and blood, you will not ever have your own apportioned land in Canaan. And sure enough, Simeon was divided into the tribe of Judah. They dispersed and ended up going north into Ephraim into the hill country. The Levites never had their own lands. However, they will end up being granted 48 cities. Now, between verses 4 and 42, all of those 48 cities are listed. And I invite you devotionally to read them, hold your spouse's hand, read them aloud, praise your God. Awesome. We're not going to do it here this morning because I'll pronounce about 98 of them wrong. It's scintillating stuff, but take the map and read the names of those 48 Levite cities that are sprinkled all around Israel. No matter where you lived in Israel, you were never more than 10 miles from a Levitical city. Isn't that interesting? No matter where you were, you were always within 10 miles. Numbers 26 tells us there were about 23,000 Levites. 23,000. So do some math. There's 48 cities, carry the one, multiply it times the circumference of it. Uh, 400 Levites per city is what we're looking at. God wants stationed these priests who point to God's provision, who instruct in God's law, 400 strong in every city. You're never more than 10 miles away. Why is that such a big deal? Because in those days, very few people were literate. And even if they were literate, what are they going to read? (laughs) Hardly anybody has a copy of Torah, of the law of Moses, and that's pretty much all there was. So perhaps you had questions about family, about God, about politics, about finances, about extended marriages and all these kinds of things. What did you do? You needed a Levite. 
All you had to go was 10 miles in any direction and you could find a Levitical city and you could get instruction from the truth of God's law, God's word, from someone who is trained therein. A beautiful, beautiful overlay of the habitat that God wants for both God and man to dwell together. And so he tells them here in verses one to three, starting in verse two, and they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we would be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. What does that mean? You go to any one of these cities, you put your back at the city gate and you go like this. And for 500 yards, that's considered the pasture land. And you slide your back along the wall. This is actual footage like this. And 500 yards from the wall in any direction, that would be the pasture lands that the Levites got for their flocks. And it would be in the particular tribe of Naphtali, Asher, Gad, Reuben, Dan, Judah, whomever. And those other tribes were supposed to support the Levites and provide for them and protect them. That was God's plan. So that they would be about the ministry of the word to God's people. Verse 3. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And verses 4 through 42 talk all about that. It's really, really scintillating reading. And then we get to the end of chapter 21, beginning in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. It's been said widely, and I agree, these last three verses are the jugular vein of the entire book of Joshua. All the land summarizes chapters 1 through 12, the conquest. The, God gave it to them, and their, that he swore to their fathers is all the apportionments, all the allotments of the tribes. It's all right there in great grand summary. But the writer of Joshua, either Joshua himself or a later editor, is using what we call hammer theology. He just keeps hammering it down until you get it. Why did he do that? Because we don't get it. And because we don't believe it. And we don't trust it. He's gonna say over and over again, God was faithful. He kept his word. God is faithful and 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 he keeps his word. God is faithful and he keeps his word. God is faithful and he keeps his word. Are you sick of me saying it yet? Yeah, and me too. But that's too bad because we don't hear it, we don't believe it, we don't trust it, and so we sin. But that's the whole point. All that God has done, and we don't trust him, we don't believe him, we still think he's holding out on us or that there might be a better offer. Uh, maybe I'm just talking to myself on that one. Verse 44. And the Lord gave them the rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them, had given all their enemies into their hands. But there were still some enemies that persisted. But God said, if you go, I have gone. I've done it, go do it. And anytime they tried, they could have. Unfortunately, the Levites did not take many of the cities that God promised them. So that by the time you get into Chronicles, there's another listing of the Levitical cities. Many of these from chapter 21 are not listed. They never finished the deal. And as a result, idolatry from Tyre and Sidon and the Philistines and the rest of the Canaanites continued to proliferate, and they were corrupted and corroded in their worship within a couple generations. 
but that's not on God. He was faithful to do every single thing he said he would do. He said, I will remove your enemies. Now listen, that was harsh when God did that. When he removed their enemies, a lot of people died. And we as Christians, we like to pray today, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please understand, there are no enemies in heaven. And one day when he does return, vengeance will be his, and that's a very serious thing. And so in the meantime, we have invitation to God's provision to be very busy about. Well, just to wrap this up in this section here. Verse 45, just to make sure we get it, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made for the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. God is good, God is faithful, we can trust him. He has provided refuge and rest. God's provision is a person. So, Joshua 20 and 21. This lengthy narrative about the conclusion of the occupation of the land of Israel. Why should we care? Well, remember, Old Testament narrative text is a commentary about God, by God, for our sake. So what do we take away from this? Four quick points, principles, implications, however you want to think of them. Number one goes like this. Life is precious. Life is precious. I know that we know that, but this passage is setting us up for a truth that began at creation. In Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27, that God has made man in his image and woman in his image. And it gets increasingly amplified through the rest of our Bible. Human beings are the only beings said to be made in God's image. Animals are not plants or not, not even the angelic realm, not even those beings are, just mankind. And so, the wanton destruction of a human life greatly grieves God. Again, Genesis 4, Genesis 6, Genesis 9. And we could all use a refresher on just how precious life is. It is not disposable. Even those with whom we disagree on all sorts of issues, their lives matter to God because they resemble God. God goes to all this trouble to establish these cities of refuge because he does not want his land defiled with a cycle of death, either from the innocent or from the guilty. Now, I want you to think about your home for a moment. The people that we live and share a home with and love, they are made in the image of God. You and I might not fully understand or appreciate that, but look at them closely you are literally seeing a flicker of the face of God. And so perhaps we can engage with one another like that was really true so that those around us could have access to the love of God in our midst. The people that we live with in our community or in our country that drive us to an absolute rage on social media, I'm just saying hypothetically, have you read the comments? Oi. They're made in the image of God. You are literally seeing a flicker of the face of God. And so perhaps we can consider one another not as threats and as offenses to our ideologies, but rather those who can have access to the refuge you and I have found in Christ. God's provision for them as well is a person. And so we pray for introduction. Number two, motive matters. Now, I know you know that but let me defend this biblically. Motive matters. In other words, it's possible for two people to do the exact same action for one person it be sin while the other it's not. 
Did you know that? If you're not a parent and you haven't figured that out about your kids, you need to understand that. Same exact action. It looks identical on the outside, but for one, it's sin, and for one, it is not. See, we are sinners that sin. It isn't the sinning that makes us sinners. We sin because that's who we are by nature. Our Bibles are certainly concerned about actions and words and deeds, but our Bibles are vastly more concerned with why we do what we do. And so the question is, your own life and your marriage and your parenting and your being a child, a coworker, a neighbor, a church member, whatever, do you spend more time merely trying to manage and police your thoughts and words and deeds? Or are you presenting your heart and your mind before the Lord so that our motives are ever increasingly like that of his son, Jesus? That's why we say it as often as we say it, doctrine absolutely matters, but we need even more than that, doctrine is the gospel. And for that, we have to look at Jesus. This is what we see from him, even at the cross. Now, it's a familiar soundbite, but I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to imagine Jesus. In your sanctified imagination, I want you to imagine Jesus beaten, scourged, nailed to a cross, crown of thorns, bloodied. And what does he cry out in Luke chapter 23, verse 34? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was he wrong? No, he was doing something gospel, glorious, and gorgeous. Oh, they knew for sure that they were trying to have him killed. They knew for sure that they had schemed and plotted and conspired to have him arrested, beaten, humiliated, and ultimately killed. They knew. But what Jesus is saying is a call back to Joshua 20. They're guilty of manslaughter. They're not guilty of murder. They have no idea that I am actually the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead Trinity, the Messiah, the Daniel chapter 7, Son of Man. Forgive them. They don't know. What did Jesus just say? Motive matters. And so the ones who have done this to him, he himself is the Goel, the Redeemer, who can set it right by turning all of their lives into asphalt. He instead calls down all of the judgment that they deserve onto himself. The Redeemer is himself vanquished. This is the gospel. Yes, doctrine matters, but we got to give our kids and one another and our mirrors the gospel. Remember that when you encounter someone that wrongs you. Remember that when you jump to condemnation of another's actions. And of course, remember that too, that our motives are laid bare before God. And so, third point, take refuge from God in God. God is sovereign. And that's the scariest news in the cosmos, unless he's also good and is for you and is pursuing you in goodness and compassion, and care, and tenderness, and grace, and mercy. And so we must take refuge from God in God. All of us have this avenger, this goel, chasing us down from the moment we enter this world in sin, trespass, and iniquity. The wages of sin is death. It is inevitable. Of course, we never really know when that avenger of death is going to catch up. And the truth of the matter is, none of us are innocent of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We need refuge. And as it turns out, God has given one. That term goel, as I mentioned, is the same term used of Boaz in the book of Ruth. He is the one that redeems the family with his abundance. And this is the provision given us by God in Christ. This is why Paul will write in Romans chapter 8 thus. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, that's Paul's euphemism for the gospel, the law of the spirit of life, I'll only use this expression, Romans 8, 2, never again, it's the gospel. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Oh, you're guilty as sin, but you're free, free indeed. And you can depart that particular city, but you can never depart the refuge that you have in Christ which is why the writer of Hebrews will put it this way, Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, because he cannot fail, he is faithful. He cannot fail, he is faithful. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Christ is the better Goel. He is the avenger and he is the refuge. So seek refuge from God in God. Last point, we believe in the priesthood of the believer. Now I know you know that, but let me make this very precise and very clear as I can. We would not agree with the position that the church has now replaced Israel and in fact, we would affirm that, the, that God still absolutely has a plan for Israel. In fact, about three-fourths of your Bible deals with the 12 tribes of Israel. That's fascinating, including the book of Revelation. But in this age, Peter writes a startling truth to the scattered Christians of, of the diaspora, where the Christians were scattered after the persecution from about 2,000 years ago, and it applies to us here and now with what we're supposed to do, be, think, feel, and minister he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, But you, church, largely Gentiles, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You can't do that unless you can. The royal tribe was Judah. The priestly tribe was Levi. And Peter says, you, this unique time and space, you are an intersection of the tribes of Levi and of Judah, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a messianic community, a covenantal mingle, we might say, a people for his own possession, his unique tribe, we might say, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, outside not having refuge, inside enjoying proximity and purpose and peace. And then verse 10, he does what only an apostle can do. He's just quoted from Exodus and Leviticus, and now he's gonna go to the prophets. So we got the law and the prophets in one little encouragement. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's that about? Well, one of the minor prophets named Hosea, you might know the story. To make a point, God has Hosea marry a prostitute named Gomer. Nobody go and name your daughter Gomer. It goes, it goes bad, right? Her name was Gomer and she was a prostitute and Hosea woos her. And then she leaves again and goes back to that life. And Hosea has to go and woo her back yet again. And she gets pregnant and she has a baby. And the baby's name is Lo-Ami, not my people. And then she gets pregnant again. And God says, I want you to name this baby No Mercy. So how's that for your first two babies? Not my people and No Mercy. Y'all go outside and play. Always picked on the playground, I'm pretty sure. What's Peter saying? Because of what God has done in Christ, you are his people. You have received mercy. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 10. And now you have received mercy. He combines the law 
and the prophets. We are distributed priests all over the world, not just in 48 cities in Israel, all over the world, all over East Texas, that point people to the provision. We point people to the avenger who is also refuge, the goel, that called down judgment on himself so that we could, in fact, be his people, receive mercy and be a royal priesthood. That's how we go out into our world, remembering who God is, what he's done, and who he has declared us to be. God's provision is a person. He is our refuge, our redeemer, our rest, and he is our high priest that unlike in Joshua 21 and Joshua 20, he will never die. Can you lose your salvation? Sure. Just as soon as Jesus sins, gets kicked out of heaven and dies. Until then, you're safe. You are secure. And that's very good news. That's the gospel. All this ecclesiology, all of this theology has to lead us to doxology. Him we praise. He's done it. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And so we praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. Even as revealed in an Old Testament text with hardly any verbs, you are prepping us for, pointing us to Jesus. And so may we now, on this side of the cross, look back to his finished work and live as though it was true. Father, whatever things are holding us back, confusing us, would you release us from those things? Fix our eyes on you, our Goel, our Redeemer. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is still just running around the countryside thinking that they're fine, would you impress upon them from this text that there is an avenger, death, because the wages of sin is death. Would they run to refuge where those doors are always unlocked, where there is a place, where there is security, where there is peace, where there is life and life abundantly. Father, if there's anyone here this morning, would you bring salvation to this house? That they would step out of death into life and out of darkness into your marvelous light. For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us all anew that this is not happenstance or coincidence. This is your perfect plan for our lives and you are faithful and you are good. So Father, we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.